0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Engineering Student Experience Podcast. I'm Paul Nissenson at the Mechanical Engineering Department at Cal Poly Pomona. Before we start with today's topic, I have a few announcements about the future of the podcast that I'd like to share with you. The first five episodes of this podcast were part of a pilot project that was funded by a small grant from my university. There was a lot of trial and error as I learned firsthand how to create and distribute a podcast, and... Although it does take a surprisingly large amount of time to plan, record, and edit each episode, and then of course make the episode available to you, I think I've found a workflow that makes the entire process manageable. I also got some feedback about the first five episodes from current engineering students at my university because I wanted to know whether they felt listening to the interviews was a good use of their time and whether I should continue making more episodes in the future. After all, one of the main purposes of this podcast is to help current and future engineering students make better decisions. If the engineering students didn't feel the episodes were useful, then maybe this podcast idea wasn't that great after all, and I can move on to something else. Well, after receiving feedback from about 50 engineering students, I was very happy to hear that their feedback was pretty positive, and it really inspired me to continue on with this podcast for the foreseeable future. Now, since it does take a lot of time to make each episode, and I'm working on this podcast as a side project, my goal is to get a new episode out to you every month or two, but we'll see if that's a reasonable long-term goal. So I'm recording this episode in September 2019, and it's my hope that if you discover this podcast a couple years from now, you'll have access to a large library of conversations to help you make a more informed decision about whether to pursue engineering, how to succeed as an engineering student, and how to succeed as an engineering professional. And for those of you who have been following this podcast from the beginning and are eagerly awaiting the next episode, please bear with me as new episodes are created and then released. I have a couple more short announcements before we get started. During the pilot project phase of this podcast, the availability of the podcast was limited to my department's YouTube channel. So I spent the past summer making the podcast available on more platforms and you can now listen to this podcast through your favorite podcast apps, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, and many other platforms. The podcast will continue to be available on my department's YouTube channel as well. Finally, the podcast now has an email address, tesepodcastgmail.com. And feel free to send messages if you have any suggestions or comments, and I'll try my best to respond to everybody. Okay, that's enough announcements for now, let's move on to today's topic. So recently, I visited a summer program for high school students here at Cal Poly Pomona called the Cal Poly Pomona Polytechnic STEAM Academy. This program takes a few dozen high school students from the local community and gives them the opportunity to connect with other local high school students, meet Cal Poly Pomona students and faculty and learn from them, and collaborate with people in industry through team-based, hands-on projects. Over the past decade, the term STEM has become very popular in K-12 education and higher education. In case you haven't heard this term before, STEM simply stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. And there are now a lot of programs that try to get students interested in pursuing majors in those fields. The STEAM in STEAM Academy stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Math. So students in the STEAM Academy are not only exposed to some current technologies, but also consider the design of the technology and its social impact, which is where the art comes into play. Students also practice essential skills for the workplace, such as team presentations and online communication, which also have aspects related to art. And in case you're interested in learning more about the program, I'll include the complete mission statement of the STEAM Academy in the show notes. So why am I talking about this program? Well, I had the opportunity to spend about half an hour with some of the STEAM Academy students to find out what topics they would most like to hear about on future episodes. You know, what are the issues and topics that would help these high school students make a better decision about whether to pursue engineering and how to succeed as an engineering student? I mean, I personally have been immersed in the world of higher education for the past 20 years, first as an undergrad student. Then as a graduate student, then as a postdoctoral researcher, and now finally as a faculty member, and it's impossible for me to put myself back into the shoes of someone who has never attended college before. So I was very curious to hear what these high school students had to say. And as I was talking with the students, it quickly became apparent that there's a lot of important basic terminology that my colleagues and I take for granted, but which are completely unknown to most people outside of a university environment, For example, if I use the term graduate school in a conversation with a guest, many high school students may have no idea what I'm even talking about. Some high school students may know that graduate school is where you can earn advanced degrees, such as masters or PhDs, but have no idea what's required to earn those degrees, or how to apply to graduate school, or whether it's even necessary to go to graduate school at all. So, in this episode and many other future episodes, I will be discussing basic terminology and basic concepts that will help current and future engineering students have a better understanding of how universities work. Many of these topics can be explained relatively quickly without needing a lengthy interview. So some episodes, like today's episode, will just involve me talking to you. Today, I'm going to talk about how to properly address your instructor, which is related to understanding all the different titles and ranks that your instructor may have. I need to give a few caveats about today's topic. First, everything that I discuss in this episode applies to institutions of higher learning in the United States, since that's what I'm most familiar with and where most of the listeners are from. I teach at a university in California and haven't spent any time teaching outside of the U.S. Although other countries may use similar titles and ranking systems for instructors, there can be some significant differences. The second caveat is... Even within the U.S., you can encounter a variety of titles and ranks from one institution to the next. So I'm going to try to be as general as possible in today's episode, but just keep in mind that there may be some exceptions out there. And the final caveat is, I'll be using the term instructor to refer to the person who lectures and is ultimately responsible for assigning a grade. Many institutions also have teaching assistants, or TAs, To help the main instructor run the course, and these TAs are usually graduate or undergraduate students who are hired to do things like run discussion sections and grade homework and tests. Everything I talk about today only applies to the main instructor, not the teaching assistants. Alright with those caveats in mind, let's begin. (music) Broadly speaking, your instructors can be divided into two large categories tenure-track faculty and non-tenure-track faculty, both of which are very important for the smooth operation of an institution. First, we'll talk about tenure-track faculty members. This category of instructors usually has many roles. Not only do they teach courses, but they may also spend a lot of time conducting research, providing service to the university by serving on committees and doing outreach, mentoring graduate and undergraduate students, and helping with student advising. The amount of time a tenure-track faculty member is required to spend on each of these different categories will depend on that particular institution. The tenure-track faculty members also are responsible for overseeing the curriculum and making changes to the curriculum whenever necessary. Tenure-track faculty members usually begin their career without a special status called tenure. After a certain period of time, typically five or six years for a young, inexperienced faculty member, they're eligible to apply for the tenure status. And tenure is essentially a reward for years of service and provides strong job security. It can be difficult to fire faculty members with tenure, which gives them more freedom to speak their mind or pursue whatever research projects they wish without worrying about possible negative repercussions to their career. Receiving tenure is not automatic, and tenure-track faculty members usually work very, very hard to earn that tenure status. Sometimes faculty members are denied tenure and leave that institution to find a position elsewhere. For tenure-track faculty members, there are various ranks that can be attained. Most new faculty members will start at the lowest rank, which is assistant professor. When an assistant professor applies for tenure, again, usually after five or six years, often he or she will apply to be promoted to the next highest rank at the same time, which is associate professor. Most associate professors will work for another four to eight years before applying for the final rank, called full professor, which is usually simply referred to as professor for short. So if you go to a department's website and look at their faculty page, you'll see a mix of assistant professors, associate professors, and professors. You won't see information about whether someone has been tenured yet, but it's usually safe to assume assistant professors are still trying to earn tenure while full professors already have tenure. As one moves up the ranks from assistant to associate, and finally to full professor, there's an increase in prestige and a pay raise, which is always nice. Okay, so I've thrown a lot of terminology at you. In order to make this more relatable, let me give you an example of my own career path so far. I joined Cal Poly Pomona in 2011 as a tenure track faculty member with the rank of assistant professor, and I did not have tenure yet. Six years later, In 2017, after a lot of work, I received tenure and was promoted to associate professor at the same time. Currently, I'm recording this episode in 2019 and I likely will apply for the rank of full professor in two or three more years. At that point, assuming all goes well and I get promoted to full professor, I'll be at the highest rank possible at Cal Poly Pomona, for a tenure-track faculty member. And at some universities, there are additional steps that you can climb within the rank of full professor, but not at my university. So now that we've spent a lot of time discussing tenure-track faculty members, let's turn to the other category of faculty, which are the non-tenure-track faculty members. Now, Usually the primary role of non-tenure-track faculty members is to teach. And for this reason, they are sometimes given titles such as lecturer or instructor, and sometimes they're called adjunct professors to differentiate them from assistant, associate, or full professors who are on a tenure track. Since saying non-tenure track faculty members is a bit of a mouthful, for the rest of this episode, I will refer to them simply as lecturers. Again, the exact title of a non-tenure track faculty member will depend on the particular institution where they teach, but the term lecturer will be fine for the purposes of this discussion. Lecturers are not eligible to receive tenure, and as a result, the lack of job security is sometimes a major issue with them. For example, one year, a department may not have enough tenure-track faculty members to teach a particular course, and the department will hire a lecturer to meet this demand. But if next year the department gains a new tenure-track faculty member who can teach that particular course, the lecturer may be out of luck and not be rehired. Fortunately, lecturers who have been teaching at an institution for a while are often eligible for multi-year contracts to obtain some measure of job security. There are other differences between tenure track faculty and lecturers related to benefits and pay, but the discussion so far covers most of the major differences between the two categories of instructors. So you may be asking yourself, why would someone want to be a lecturer instead of a tenure-track faculty member? There are many possible reasons. Lecturers usually get to focus solely on teaching and don't have other responsibilities such as research, advising, and service to the university, all of which can take up a lot of time and sometimes aren't as enjoyable as teaching and interacting with students. Some lecturers have another full-time job and simply want to teach just one course on the side when it's convenient for them. You have a lot of flexibility as a lecturer. If life suddenly becomes too busy or you simply lose interest in teaching those particular courses, you're free to stop teaching once the academic term is finished. If you like teaching, but you don't like working with the people in that particular department or that particular institution, you're free to try finding a teaching position at a different institution. Another reason why someone might be a lecturer instead of a tenure-track faculty member is that the degree requirements to become a tenure-track faculty member is usually very high. Nowadays, many universities require that tenure-track faculty members have the highest degree possible, a PhD, but will have lower requirements for lecturers. Often, just a master's degree is required, or even a bachelor's degree may be acceptable if the lecturer has a lot of other strengths, such as a lot of experience in industry. Some lecturers may have a Ph.D. and technically be eligible to apply for a tenure-track position, but their teaching experience is somewhat lacking and they want to build up their resume by teaching a few courses before actually applying for a tenure-track position. And before I end this discussion about the differences between tenure-track faculty and non-tenure-track faculty, I really want to emphasize that institutions of higher learning usually rely on both types of faculty members to fulfill the mission of the institution. Just because one group can get tenure and obtain ranks like assistant, associate, and full professor while the other group can't, that doesn't tell you anything about the effectiveness of the instructor. I've known lecturers who are amazing teachers. And I've known full professors who are, let's just say, much less effective at teaching and vice versa. Now that you hopefully have a better understanding of the two major categories of instructors, I want to discuss a couple other important titles that your instructor might have earned. Many of your instructors will have earned a Ph.D., which is the highest degree possible, earning them the title doctor. In a future episode, I'll discuss the efforts required to obtain advanced degrees such as master's or Ph.D., but for now I'll simply mention that it often takes four or more years of very hard work to obtain a Ph.D. after already spending four more years obtaining a bachelor's degree. And as I mentioned earlier, most tenure track faculty members will have a PhD while many lecturers will not. They'll often have a master's and sometimes a bachelor's degree. Another title that your engineering instructor may have earned is a PE, which means they are licensed as a professional engineer. In a future episode, we'll discuss in detail what is required to obtain a PE license and why an engineer might want to get one, but essentially it's given to an engineer who has proved their competency through a combination of earning a bachelor's degree, working professionally as an engineer for a period of time and passing a couple of very intense tests. If an instructor has earned their PE license, you'll usually see the letters PE written after their name. So getting back to our original question, how do you address your engineering instructor? If you want to ask your instructor a question, what do you call that person? Well, you often won't be told whether the instructor is tenure-track or non-tenure-track And if the instructor is tenure-track, you often won't know right away if he or she is an assistant, or associate, or full professor. Sometimes you won't even know whether the instructor has earned a PhD. So shortly, I'm going to give you a simple rule of thumb for addressing your instructor in a respectful manner. And this rule will apply whether you're talking to them in person or writing an email. If you're a student, you shouldn't call your instructor by their first name and never use titles like Mr. Mrs., Ms., or Miss, unless the instructor specifically says it's okay. Now, in high school, students do get accustomed to addressing their teachers as Mr. for a man and Mrs., Ms., or Miss for a woman, but that's not a good idea when addressing a college instructor. Even if you mean absolutely no disrespect, some instructors will actually be insulted if you do not use their official title. Back when I was getting my bachelor's degree, I remember one instructor, who was a full professor and had a Ph.D., yell in anger at a student when that student called him Mr. So-and-so. Personally, I've been called Mr. Nissenson by first-year students on a few occasions, and it just sounds odd to not hear a formal title when a student addresses me in a university setting. It's not necessarily an ego thing, it's just not part of the university culture. I don't get angry at those students who call me mister because I know they didn't mean me any disrespect, but using a proper title really matters to some instructors and you don't want to get on an instructor's bad side because ultimately they have control over your grade. So this leaves us with using professor or doctor for addressing an instructor to his or her face. It's usually safest to use professor, even if the instructor technically isn't a full professor if you happen to know that your instructor has earned a Ph.D., doctor is usually fine as well. So if your instructor is named Jane Smith and she has earned a Ph.D., it's safest to refer to her as Professor Smith or Dr. Smith, or simply just Professor or Doctor. Even if you have an instructor who is totally fine with you being on a first-name basis with them, it's still usually a good idea to use the title professor or doctor when talking about that person to another instructor. It could be seen as a sign of disrespect to do otherwise. So if a student wanted to talk to me about Jane Smith, it's better for that student to refer to her as Professor Smith or Dr. Smith. Now in contrast, when instructors talk to each other, they're almost always on a first name basis unless it's a formal setting like a conference. Even though Jane Smith and I both have a PhD and are professors, I would call her Jane and she would call me Paul if we were talking to each other at a department meeting, if we're at lunch or in most other settings. But if Jane Smith were at a conference about to give a talk and it was my responsibility to introduce her to the audience, I would usually introduce her as Dr. Smith to the audience. Similarly, if I were to talk about Jane Smith to a student, I would usually refer to her as Dr. Smith or Professor Smith. And of course, another time, When it's okay to be on a first-name basis is when I'm talking with friends or family. None of my friends or family members call me doctor or professor. That'd be kind of odd. I'm just Paul or Uncle Paul to my young nieces. These subtle differences might sound trivial, maybe even egotistical, but they can be very important to some instructors. So, just to be on the safe side, remember this simple rule of thumb. Unless told otherwise, refer to an instructor as professor. All right, that's all for today. I hope this episode would help clarify some of the subtleties involved with addressing your instructors. <music> if you enjoyed this podcast, there are a few ways to support it. You can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast apps such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, and many others. You can rate this podcast and leave comments on whatever app you use to listen to the podcast. And finally, you can help spread the word about this podcast by telling your friends or family or sharing on social media. If you have any comments about this episode, feel free to email me at tesepodcast@gmail.com. You can find the email address in the show notes as well. I'll personally read each email and try my best to respond to all of them. Goodbye for now.